I really want to see disciplinarity and interdisciplinarity not necessarily as normative and certainly not as normative opposites, but rather as various way of functioning in the knowledge enterprise, the larger enterprise to gain knowledge. And, and in that regard, I think it's an empirical fact simply that interdisciplinarity is out there, it is growing, it is constantly searching and finding new forms and formats. We should pay more attention to that. It's remarkable that the Center for Interdisciplinary Research never developed a theory about interdisciplinarity. I think there are in the world, as far as I know, there are only few centers which work in this way to be totally dedicated to interdisciplinary research as the CIF Bielefeld is. I am an accidental interdisciplinary scholar. I followed my nose and that's where I ended up. The benefit of it, more than the actual sort of professional benefit for me, has been that sense of constant curiosity that it is possible to find new ways of thinking about stuff that keep me wanting to do this work. We shouldn't see interdisciplinarity as something exceptional or something rare. Rather, I think that there are interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary elements in almost all research. So we should think of interdisciplinarity, multidisciplinarity and disciplinarity together rather than opposites. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This is the first episode in our new series, SCAS Talks Spotlight, a series where we focus on a specific topic. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and regular listeners know that I usually ask the guests on the podcast about their own experience of the multi- and interdisciplinary environment at SCAS. In this episode, we dive a bit deeper into the topic of interdisciplinarity since Gas recently arranged the workshop Beyond Advanced Studies, Interdisciplinary Theory and Research Careers. This was the first workshop out of three organized by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study, Aarhus Institute for Advanced Studies and Turku Institute for Advanced Studies. And this was funded by the Joint Committee for Nordic Research Councils in the Humanities and Social Sciences. What are the views on interdisciplinarity? How can one build an interdisciplinary research career? And how can the Institutes for Advanced Study contribute to interdisciplinarity? These were my questions to Sveika Selin from the Royal Institute for Technology, Britta Padbeck from the Academy of International Affairs, Maria Polvinen from the University of Helsinki, and Kerstin Selin, Uppsala University. We start with Sveike Selin and his views on disciplinarity versus multi- and interdisciplinarity. Maybe they are variations of the same theme, or at least interplay with one another. My name is Sveike Selin. I'm a professor of environmental history at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm and also a long-term fellow here at SCAS. 
Yes, and you have been a guest previously on the podcast, actually in the second episode. That's right, yeah. yeah. In the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about the COVID pandemic. Yeah, that was more than a year ago, I think, yeah. But today we should talk about this workshop in interdisciplinarity. The first question is, what is your own view on interdisciplinary research, especially versus multi and transdisciplinary research? Well, I'm among those who really don't pay much attention to those distinctions. I think they're all part of the same thing. There is also the concept post-disciplinary. I mean, as long as you somehow work a little bit outside of the most, so to speak, narrow disciplinary constraints, then you're into something that is in one way or the other interdisciplinary. Basically, I think this is a phenomenon that has grown. I think it has grown alongside with the disciplinarity. The more disciplinarity and specialization you get, the more also you get of interdisciplinarity. It's somehow communicating uh, sources in a sense. A couple of hundred years ago, we were only a handful of disciplines and the word discipline wasn't much used to talk about subjects in research. And then there was also no interdisciplinarity. Now, with specialization growing, there is a, a need to uh, also have interdisciplinarity that's uh, growing, really. And uh, I think this is very interesting and very promising. And it's also entering the world of in institutes for advanced study. So how would you define interdisciplinarity? Well, it's a little bit hard to define, but I think it's as long as people work together from multiple backgrounds, there is an element of interdisciplinarity. But interestingly, I think also a single person can work interdisciplinarily. If that person sort of brings those backgrounds from various fields, him or herself. So in a sense, you could say that an author writing a, a book of essays about some topic may do this much better if that author is thinking interdisciplinarily. If you write it from a strictly disciplinary point of view, you tend to have a more narrow audience. <laughs> Your audience broadens if you can think across boundaries and consider multiple purposes and so on. So it's actually very hard to define, although the, the concept disciplinary here somehow points to the fact that there should be some element of science involved or scholarship. It's not just mixing anything. It's mixing various scientific approaches to a particular topic or issue. But it could be done by a single person. It could be done by multiple people. And certainly you can have enormously big schools in universities that are operating on interdisciplinary basis. So it's a rich diversity, I think. Yeah, I just had a conversation at lunch with a fellow who wasn't really sure what subject she even belonged to. So I guess that kind of person is an interdisciplinary person in herself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but even such a person often, if it is a person working in science and scholarship, I would say probably has some kind of training in some discipline at some point in time. I was trained in history and I still identify quite a bit as an historian. I sort of admit that I, I think historically very much, but I've been working so much with other people in various fields, particularly some areas like geography, for example, other social sciences, and also some sciences, climate science, not the least, that I have a sort of multiple identities. I can also present myself as a an ordinary humanities person, a social science person. I would not claim I'm a natural scientist. It would be impossible. I don't have the background to claim that. 
but I certainly do work together with and co-publish with people in, in the sciences. Some of my most cited and most significant papers are written with scientists. Yes. You were addressing this a little bit in your keynote lecture, but one of the topics of this workshop is how can one build a career in interdisciplinary research? Can you give us a brief recap of your thoughts on this? How can you do it? It's not obvious. It's not the well-trodden path that you have in disciplines. It's something else. And I think much of that career-making probably happens after your PhD. Typically the PhD, and I think also for those who end up becoming very interdisciplinary in their careers, has happened in a discipline. It's almost impossible not to have a training in a discipline or maybe a group of disciplines, but you have to have a degree in some subject. But what happens then after that is more up for grabs or up for variation. Again, I think the large majority still pursue a career within more or less the same discipline where they have the PhD from. It's sort of cumulative. But there are many points in that development where you can start doing other things. But as long as you, you do that, you somehow, you're not typical anymore. You're more individual in your career making. Often you do both. You actually accelerate or move upscale your own disciplinary career. And at the same time, you diversify. You spend time in special centers and institutes. You collaborate in projects with other people. You maybe work outside academia. You get interaction with civil society or companies and more policy making. And over the years, you somehow grow a more interdisciplinary person in your practice and in your collaborations. So, but that is harder to sort of define. There are some places I think that are particularly useful if you want to pursue these kinds of careers. There are certain research institutes and also certain schools and faculties within universities that really declare themselves to operate on an interdisciplinary basis. And if you go to them, you can do this. I talked today, for example, about a new big school at Stanford University, where they certainly have these ambitions. And uh, I think career making in these kinds of environments will be very different from the standard disciplinary department. But it's not as transparent and as obvious as it is compared to the ordinary um, departments. Some people do become professors in things they did not do that maybe didn't even exist when they had their PhD. Many fields are new. Many things happen along the way. I really want to see disciplinarity and interdisciplinarity not necessarily as normative and certainly not as normative opposites, but rather as various ways of functioning in the knowledge enterprise, the larger enterprise to gain knowledge. And, and in that regard, I think it's an empirical fact simply that interdisciplinarity is out there, it is growing, it is constantly searching and finding new forms and formats. We should pay more attention to that and we should think about when it's working well or when it's not working well. Clearly the same thing with disciplines. They sometimes work very well, they sometimes don't. And this kind of sort of co-evolution of disciplinarity and interdisciplinarity, I think, is a very valid phenomenon to write modern history, so to speak, about knowledge history and how it evolves constantly. You mentioned that a lot of the calls for interdisciplinarity are based on a need for a challenge in society that has to be solved. That's sort of an application. You want to solve a problem and you need knowledge for that. But how does that relate to widening the knowledge base and creating more knowledge, which you were just into? Can you do both? Yeah, I think we can do both. I'm very much a do both kind of person. Doing more than one is often my answer because I think that's the true answer. It, it is possible. And for example, when you start new interdisciplinary 
projects, sometimes very, very big projects or new schools that are operating on interdisciplinary principles. It is not because we want to solve, just solve a problem. You don't want to produce basic knowledge anymore or new knowledge. Of course you do. These places produce just as much new knowledge. And we don't need to go to, to California to find that. I was part of starting in a small role, but I was part of it, starting the uh, Stockholm Resilience Center at Stockholm University, where I worked for five years and I followed interest with keen interest what they've been doing. It's a very interdisciplinary place. It has a focus in some disciplines. They don't do the whole range, but they do quite a lot. And they operate on, on the highest possible level. And they are both part of problem solving and deliver results for applications and uh, policy. And at the same time, they produce fundamental new knowledge. I was myself part of writing some papers, particularly together with scientists. And certainly we who were social scientists and humanities were in minority, but we were there and we were significant for the overall result and vice versa. Indeed, I would say those multi-authored, groundbreaking papers in some fields are very often written by people who represent different kinds of knowledge, because I think also the clout of the message is becoming stronger when you do that. When you come from within a discipline, in a sense, the reach of your voice may not be the same, and the relevance of the results that you bring can be very groundbreaking indeed, but they may not have the same kind of societal broad impact. So breadth in impact is somehow related to breadth in knowledge base. Not in a sort of one-to-one, neat fit kind of thing, but it's complex, but it's, there's still some relation. And nobody, I hear never anybody asking us to go back 50 or 70 years and go back to a pre-interdisciplinary kind of period. That's unthinkable, I think. You want to do the thing in the right way for the right situation, for the right place, with the right people. And that can differ, certainly. Sure. Just one more question. What role do you think this Institute for Advanced Studies who are represented here today, what role can they play in interdisciplinarity and interdisciplinary research? I think they're already playing some role. I mean, they started back in the early 1930s with a very much a genius model, individual people who came together. But already then there were people from different fields and they met in a small faculty, physics, mathematics. You started building from there and now it's broadened. Some of the more recent institutes, now there are more than 100 institutes for advanced study around the world. First one was in Princeton. Some of these now existing IASs, they, they tend to actually address interdisciplinarity. That's part of their remit, so to speak. That was also partly in some cases with, that they were founded at all. So you have a diversity already. And I think this meeting in and of itself is a way of testing whether more interdisciplinarity might be a way of carving out new and perhaps even more important roles for Institutes for Advanced Study into the future, which again, I think, as I, I constantly repeat here, that it, that does not exclude, certainly not, work in more sort of specialized areas. They sort of work together and the specializations tend to feed into the broader patterns. So again, we need both. And I'm sure that the Institutes for Advanced Study will be able to do that. There are more than 100 institutes for advanced study in the world. The first one was established in Princeton in the US in 1930, recruiting scholars within mathematics. Albert Einstein was one of the first professors at the institute. The institutes for advanced study have since then spread and evolved and their different models of operation, 
Some recruit individual scholars, some recruit research groups, and others have yet a thematic model. Nowadays, there are also university-based institutes for advanced study. One of the older institutes in Europe is the Center for Interdisciplinary Research in Bielefeld, often referred to as CIF. Britta Padbeck has been the managing director and tells us more about her views on interdisciplinarity. Britta Padbeck, I'm coming from Germany, currently living in Berlin, and um, I'm affiliated to the new founded Academy of International Affairs in Bonn, which was just opened two months ago. But I have broad experiences in um, fostering interdisciplinary research as the managing former managing director of the Center for Interdisciplinary Research at Bielefeld University. Yes, and if I've understood it correctly, this uh, Bielefeld uh, Center is quite prominent in the history of um, institutes for advanced studies. That's true. I think it was not only the first institute for advanced study in Germany, but among the first institutes all over the world. And it created it, its own model to foster interdisciplinary research in comparison to the Princeton model and the model of the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Palo Alto. The CIF doesn't offer any individual fellowships, but is focused just on group research. So they foster and invite entire research groups coming to its place. They have to be interdisciplinary and international. So they created an own model, and this was in 1968 when they were established. And they are also an integral part of the newly founded university at Bielefeld. So they really created a new structural model also for modern research universities. It's interesting to get to know these different models that you also explained very nicely in your lecture. Let's talk more about interdisciplinarity, because that's what we're here for all along. So what is your view on interdisciplinarity and interdisciplinary research, maybe also in comparison to multi- and transdisciplinarity? It's remarkable that the Center for Interdisciplinary Research never developed a theory about interdisciplinarity. I think there are in the world, as far as I know, there are only few centers which work in this way, to be totally dedicated to interdisciplinary research, as the CIF in Bielefeld is. But anyway, so there was never a theory about it. And why wasn't it that? I think the CIF regard itself as a space to invite uh, researchers who bring in their ideas of research, which might be need um, the perspective from other disciplines. And the CIF was always very liberal in that. So we believed in bottom-up interdisciplinary research in comparison to top-down interdisciplinary research projects which might be developed nowadays a lot by universities or also funding organizations for different reasons. So the CIF regard itself to be a place for basic interdisciplinary research and doesn't have the expectation that this will have an outcome. And we experienced that different models could develop under this umbrella. If the researchers and the scholars are able to develop high epistemic overlap, this could be very fruitful and lead to 
long-term collaboration or even the development of new research fields or uh, new disciplines. But it could also be a loose kind of exchange which could be beneficial for these researchers. I would uh, compare this with a kind of intellectual gym. You stretch a little bit your spirit, your knowledge. You get to know totally different perspectives on the same topic you are concerned with. And this might make a difference, maybe not directly, but after a while. So we asked the people five years later, how did you profit by this? How did it develop? So sometimes it's, it's a strong collaboration which continued. For epistemic reasons, in this case, when you share methods or theories, which is more likely in the natural sciences, or it was just an inspiring year where you profit indirectly. The humanities and uh, social sciences profit more by this loose kind of collaboration. That's my experience more or less. I like the comparison to the gym. So you sort of develop and grow your intellectual muscles. That's nice. <laughs> you didn't talk so much about it in, in your lecture, but what about building a career in interdisciplinarity? I mean, your own background is quite interesting in that aspect also. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that, where you come from and how you build an interdisciplinary career. So I think I'm not such a good example how it could work as an academic career, but I studied physical anthropology and history and I was very much interested in the field of environmental history. And this was at the end of the 80s, where this field was really very new. And I worked on the ecology of medieval towns. And it was so interesting for me to think about how nature influenced culture and vice versa. So this was what I was very much interested. And I tried to apply the theory of human ecology on an historical theme. But it's a very stony way, I must say. <laughs> I'm very happy to observe that nowadays this environmental history becomes stronger again because we all experience that we are facing a huge transformation of human-influenced ecological systems through climate change, for example. And we need this historical experience, how mankind could deal with that, what influences will have on everything in our life. So I think it's still a very important research uh, field. But in my case, I make the decision to drop out and change into the management. And I profit a lot by my experience in natural science on the one hand side and in the humanities on the other hand side, because I feel that still there are two different cultures in a way to produce knowledge. And I think it's good also for managers to have a sense for this, that you can't compare the epistemic way how natural sciences work. Or you can compare it, but you shouldn't think that it's the same thing. So I think humanities and social sciences need a different framework in many regards than the natural sciences. And nowadays, the politics are based on the model of the natural sciences and engineering and applied this to the field of the humanities and social sciences. For example, this age factor to measure scientific success or the record might be a good example. Or it's not possible in the, the field of social sciences and humanities to have such a hierarchical ranking of journals because the journals stand for different schools, for different approaches, and there is no hierarchy in this. It's a multi-perspective 
community and this is really important. You shouldn't destroy this. So I think I have good requirements to work in this field of how to support science and the humanities in a broad sense. I completely agree on this. The fields are quite different and yeah, you have different measures of output also and criteria and so on mm-hmm. and ways of working also. <laughs> Yes, you already told us a bit how the um, Institutes for Advanced Studies can play a role in interdisciplinarity. But what about the future then? I mean, in your keynote lecture, you gave the historical background and took us through the development of the Institutes for Advanced Studies. But what do you think will happen next in the next 10, 20 years? What development can we expect? I think the Institutes are very interesting entities because they are so flexible and so open, and they should reinvent themselves frequently. And that makes a difference to other kind of research centers. So they really should focus on things that couldn't be done somewhere else. So they really could be an innovative factor driving force with also within their universities. And in my regard, the including of experiences and perspectives from the global south is a very important issue in that field. And I think the Institute for Advanced Study have a responsibility to include this experience to face the grand challenges nowadays. Since there are also instruments to give reputation, scientific reputation, they also have a responsibility to search for the leading researchers in the global south. It's really difficult, but I think it uh, would make sense to put really effort in that. So I present in my lecture that the new generation of the university-based institutes also became powerful tools for the university governance to foster the building of interdisciplinary projects and so on, which is okay. The funding comes from the university. They have the right to expect something by those institutes, but I think they should be very much aware that they could use this interesting instrument just if they give the freedom to make autonomous decision about selection of the fellows or of the projects. I think then these institutions could play really a very, very interesting role within the universities. Leave these as open spaces where bottom-up projects could grow. And also, I really also like this idea of that the university get new intellectual centers again through this Institute for Advanced Studies, because I think this is missing in bigger research universities nowadays. And the scholars are, are searching for places like that, where they could have this exchange also with others from other disciplines. You have to find nice methods how to bring together those people. So Bielefeld, for example, we invited a selected number of university members, professors, to meet for dinner talks with the fellows, not larger than 40 people. And uh, this setting really created very interesting discussions and also they got acquainted to each other because normally you don't meet a colleague from another department so easily. This is just one example how they could influence also the dynamic and the social life within the universities. So 
For many participants, this workshop was the first physical meeting since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. The possibility to interact physically and discuss both in the sessions and during the breaks was appreciated by everybody, not to even mention the good food and entertainment provided by SCAS. Some participants could however not be present in person due to restrictions and followed the workshop by Zoom. One such scholar was Maria Polvenen, Eric Allard Fellow at SCAS during the academic year of 2019-2020. She shared some of her thoughts during the session on interdisciplinary research in practice, aspiration and challenges, and with me later on through a distant recording session. So my name is Maria Bolvinen and I'm, I'm a university lecturer or sort of assistant professor docent at the University of Helsinki and I work both at the English department and then partly at the department of comparative literature. So I exist in between sort of different units even within my own university. I work at the moment in cognitive literary studies. So I, I look at results coming in from neuroscience try to think of how that would be useful for trying to understand storytelling and how and why human beings tell stories that are not true. And at the same time, I try to work back towards the neurosciences so that they would be then able, better able to create actual empirical tests that would actually be, shall we say, worth something to a literary scholar, because at the moment, the testing tends to be pretty simplistic in terms of what it is that reading fiction is to a literary scholar. And so issues like imagination, artifice, self-reflection, all of these things are, are pretty difficult to do with the current tools of neuroscience. And I try to do the conceptual work that would help in making sort of better empirical studies, as well as think about these issues within literary studies. And I, I have worked in several or two of the, the Nordic Institutes of Advanced Study. I did a three-year fellowship at the Helsinki Institute, and I did one year as an Erik Allard Fellow at SCAS from 2019 to 2020. So I was one of that cohort who had to exile themselves from SCAS, and I still haven't been able to come back, which is really, really sad. We hope that you can come back one day. And your research sounds super interesting and worth a podcast episode of its own, I think. But then let's focus on interdisciplinarity, because that's what the workshop is about. So what is your view on interdisciplinary research? Maybe also a bit of your own experience. I mean, first of all, if we want to sort of do our definition of terms, which humanities scholars tend to want to do. So for me, interdisciplinarity certainly does involve some kind of an integration of methodologies, just more than it means just several people from different fields working together, which I understand to be multidisciplinarity. So in order for someone to actually be doing interdisciplinary work, they would have to be pretty familiar with at least two different disciplinary cultures. And most often, as, as we've been talking a lot during this workshop, most often those situations arise because there is a problem that you feel that you can't solve unless you reach out and take something over from another discipline to help you answer that question. 
And that's a really sensible way of doing things, much more so, I think, than trying to implement this sort of top-down versions. I mean, you need both. You need the feedback. But most of all, it needs to come from a particular research question that you have that you can't answer with the tools that already exist for you in, in your own discipline. But then what happened with me was that the questions that I wanted to answer were questions within literary studies, but I felt that by looking at them through this kind of mirroring from neuroscience, I was actually able to rethink things within my own discipline without actually having to do neuroscience. So I was I was looking at the conceptual structures that are there in how we understand the mind and then reflect them back onto my own literary theoretical conceptual structures and then try to push literary studies further out into fields where it maybe hasn't been before. And on the other hand, then try to push the neurosciences further into fields where they haven't been before. So, so it is that kind of trying to add something to both fields, but most of all to my own. But that's, I mean, that's a really good way because you don't just start doing neuroscience, right? If you haven't been schooled in it. <laughs> exactly. And I haven't. You are very interdisciplinary yourself. So how can you build a career in interdisciplinary research? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? And in some senses, I mean, when I described what I ended up doing and why I ended up doing interdisciplinarity, I do kind of feel that my motivation was more selfish than anything else, that I was doing this kind of selfish interdisciplinarity, that I wanted to benefit my own field more than I wanted to sort of solve a particular problem out there in the world that needed solving. But I also feel that I didn't become an interdisciplinary scholar because it would be of particular benefit to my own career. And I, I'm not 100% sure that it has been I'm pretty sure that the reason why I got my permanent position, for example, wasn't because I was doing interdisciplinary literary studies. It was simply because I'd done a lot of collaboration. I'd done a lot of traveling. I'd done a lot of teaching and, and research in various places. So I had a lot of experience in my bag at that point. And it wasn't so much the interdisciplinarity of it that was beneficial. So, yeah, I... I am an accidental interdisciplinary scholar. I followed my nose and that's where I ended up. The benefit of it, more than the actual sort of professional benefit for me, has been that sense of constant curiosity that it is possible to find new ways of thinking about stuff that keep me wanting to do this work rather than just settle down and teach as, as little as I can and and sort of semi-retire as soon as I can. What would your advice be to scholars in your situation who want to or need to integrate more disciplines into their own work? Patience and open-mindedness. One of the things that I think is a real danger from interdisciplinary scholarship is that you end up cherry-picking, shopping from the other discipline just the bits that you want. And that is a real danger and a real problem. You have to be very humble about it. And when the people from within that discipline come and tell you that mm, nah, you've misunderstood and you've just kind of tweaked the field in such a way that it fits what you want to do, that's a fair criticism and it has to be accepted. So be patient, work hard, be humble about the other discipline and the, and the knowledge they produce, 
but also, of course, talk to a lot of people, as many as you possibly can. Learn from every single person that you meet. Sort of absorb everything that you can, rather than try to assert your own knowledge in these situations. It doesn't sound like a strategy for introverts, if you have to talk to a lot of people and put yourself out there, really? Well, it depends on how you how you define communication. I mean, talking to a lot of people, yes, you can also just write to them. But human beings being human beings, we tend to form contacts in face-to-face meetings. So going to conferences, talking to people there, yeah, it comes with the territory. You, you can't put yourself in a corner and sit quietly. Most of the colleagues that I work most closely with are people that I've met in conferences. We realized we're kind of hitting it off as human beings as much as we are finding commonality in our research. And that's the way it's, it's been. And those kinds of contacts are then easy to maintain once you go back and maintain the email contact. Nowadays, Zoom, before it was Skype. So formulating the contact first as a human being as much as a researcher is something that I personally believe in. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's how it works best, right? So what role do the institutes for advanced study play in interdisciplinarity, do you think? For me, the most important thing is making sure that the people who are fellows in, a, in an IAS are there together, that the residence sort of expectation is kind of crucial here, I think. Mostly because that's the way you actually make these kinds of human contacts that we were talking about. And whether the people who go into an IAS go there each with an interdisciplinary angle, I don't think is particularly important. More important is the fact that on a daily basis, you end up having to share your thoughts and listen to people from other fields and try to understand their thinking. Interdisciplinary happens on the sly just because you don't have your own research cohort to talk to. You have to talk to these other people. That's the magic. During your talk at this workshop, you also mentioned interdisciplinarity for PhD students and how you can promote that for for that group, who's a bit younger than the fellows at the institutes. Could you say a few words about that? It's something that we have tried to promote at the doctoral program for philosophy, arts and society at the University of Helsinki. That's a multidisciplinary program with more than 200 PhD students altogether. And because of the institutional structure that we have, that we have these PhD students working in their own discipline, as well as there being a graduate school for humanities and social sciences that offers a lot of the sort of professional guidance and coursework on how to be a researcher, how to be a professional academic. We felt that there was very little for us to do in terms of our teaching program, except interdisciplinary skills. So that's what we set out to do, to promote seminars where we asked our members to construct presentations that would actually be meant for an interdisciplinary audience rather than to the peers in their own discipline. We asked people to write papers and comment on papers where we actually sort of cross disciplinary borders a little bit. I do feel very strongly that's a necessary skill, a research skill nowadays in in today's academia, even though it doesn't necessarily get explicitly 
put into teaching programs for, for PhDs. Interesting. Usually you stay within your own field and your supervisor wants you to concentrate on your project. That does create a lot of pressure on, on programs like ours in that we are trying to compete for sort of very little amount of time that the PhD scholars have and give them something that we believe are sort of completely necessary skills for their future careers, but which supervisors don't necessarily always see as particularly important themselves, partly because perhaps they haven't felt it necessary to use such skills in their own work or because they just feel that something has to give, that the PhD comes first, discipline, expertise comes first, and everything else is extra. Is there anything you would like to add? Any thoughts on interdisciplinarity that you want to share on this podcast? I suppose mostly to sort of talk more about that opportunities for early career scholars when they are looking for a settled permanent position. Because if you are an interdisciplinary scholar, if you have a lot of background in short-term research projects, fellowships in IASs even, but which kind of creates a research profile that doesn't fit some of the older defined disciplines. And you're, you're trying to look for a position when a university wants a person to teach these particular courses in this particular program. And the only way that I can see that opening up to interdisciplinary scholars is if we as universities and as study programs become a lot more flexible in who teaches where, in that an individual teacher would certainly have an X number of courses that they need to teach, but they don't always need to teach those courses within that one department or within that one study program, but that we can we can share our expertise between different kinds of units and different kinds of, of programs. And that would be beneficial for students as well, I believe. You also had some thoughts about recruitment to the Institute of Advanced Studies. What should they think about when they recruit their fellows to really stay interdisciplinary and excellent, of course, also? It's really difficult to say what would be the best way to go about it. But I do agree that the principle of just hire the best is the way to go, whether they are interdisciplinary or not. But then the one thing that came up in the discussions yesterday as well is that some institutes have interviews, others do not. And the interviews, I think, would be one place where the commonality that we talked about as well could be ensured. As institute representatives, you would be able to, during that interview, to make it perfectly clear to future fellows that sharing and thinking together is one of the central points of, of having an institute in the first place and sort of making sure that the person you are hiring seems to be prepared to do that. I don't know how many people would say in an interview like that, that, by the way, I'm not going to come to the common seminars or I'm going to sit there and answer my emails. But at least that would be explicit in, the, in a social setting during the interview as well as being there in the paperwork. But is interdisciplinarity really something exceptional or new? Shestin Salin, professor at Uppsala University, has worked in interdisciplinary environments for quite some time and lets us know her thoughts. 
My name is Justin Salin. I'm a professor of organization studies here at Uppsala University. Since the mid-90s, I've had various positions as academic leader, as deputy vice-chancellor of Uppsala University and the secretary general of humanities and social sciences at the Swedish Research Council. I'm now chair of several boards of interdisciplinary programs and centers, and I'm also the, the one of the vice presidents of the, the Royal Swedish Academy. So I sort of work in an interdisciplinary environment, you could say, and have done so for quite some time. So with all your experience and also now after the three days workshop, what is your view on interdisciplinarity? I think we have had excellent days. One of the things that I, I think is extremely important to emphasize, and I try to do that in my presentation, is that we shouldn't see interdisciplinarity as something exceptional or something rare. Rather, I think that there are interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary elements in almost all research. So we should think of interdisciplinarity, multidisciplinarity and disciplinarity together rather than opposites. A good environment for such research is a multidisciplinary environment. In that way you can really explore and reflect upon differences among areas of expertise, methodological, theoretical assumptions and, and frameworks and also the actual aim of the research. And that's the whole point, I think, with interdisciplinarity, that you sort of combine different fields of expertise and different viewpoints and perspectives. You really have to work to maintain that and to make use of that difference. I think you do that if you have an interdisciplinary, integrated project or program in a multidisciplinary environment, because that's when you really always on the table, you have these differences and, and it's sort of at the background of all your discussions. What is your own experience? How do you make it work? My first real experience as leading interdisciplinary work was when I was the director of SCORE, Stockholm Center for Organization Research, which is an interdisciplinary research center in Stockholm. And this was in the mid-90s, early and mid-90s. We really sat down and said that we need to teach each other. And uh, we read each other's favorite articles. We discussed them. We discussed basic assumptions. So we really took an effort in both understanding and reflecting upon our differences and really learning about them. So that's one part. I am right now chair of an interdisciplinary research program called VASP-HS, Wallenberg AI Autonomous Systems and Software Program. And that is broader interdisciplinarity, you could say, than uh, SCORE was within the humanities and social sciences, whereas VASP-HS includes also computer science and technical sciences. There it's even more important, I think, to really take time and think about and reflect about how you combine the research and about the differences. 
And in very concrete terms, this means that when we support research projects, we also arrange quite a few meetings across those projects on theoretical themes, on specific themes. And that's occasions where you sort of lift the eyes from the actual research topic as such and really think about how is this combination really contributing to our research, combination of expertise. And one of the challenges is also to understand each other and the research methodologies, which can be quite different in different fields, right? Yes, certainly. And research aims and assumptions. What more do you do research for? Is it mostly a sort of a reflective, constructive, explanatory, descriptive? And it is important not to take that for granted because in closed groups or in groups that have worked together for a long time, they may be disciplinary or an interdisciplinary, more institutionalized setting. Maybe some of those things are often taken for granted. And in an interdisciplinary environment, I think it is extremely important to be cautious of not taking for granted what others think. So you have to go beyond the sort of the polite interest in others' work. One part of the workshop was about building a career within interdisciplinary research. What are your thoughts on this? My field of research, organization theory, is partly interdisciplinary in itself. I mean, it includes political science, management, sociology, anthropology, history, etc., etc. Neighboring disciplines, if I may say so. So I have very little experiences of trying to build a career myself in an interdisciplinary environment. I think that there is quite a lot of understanding of and appreciation of interdisciplinarity. It's often said on a general level that it's difficult to build a career. I'm not so sure. It depends, I think. When I've been involved as a reviewer or a mentor or an organizer of individual funding schemes for excellent researchers, for example, I often find that they are very interdisciplinary in their work. But if they have a a clear research aim, I don't think it seems to be a big problem. When I was a secretary general at the Swedish Research Council, we arranged uh, roundtable talks with younger researchers to reflect upon interdisciplinarity. And if I remember right, I think we had like uh, six or seven or eight researchers around the table. And I think only one really said that it has been a problem. So I don't think that's the main, uh, main <laughs> challenge. What can the funders do to encourage interdisciplinary research? If I go back to and and think about what we did at the Swedish Research Council, it is extremely important when you set up peer review boards to really make them respect each other and to really have guidelines showing that they are not there to protect their discipline, as it were, but really to assess the quality of the research to be funded. That's one thing. I mean, ordinary 
research funding is largely also involves interdisciplinarity. As I said, I think that many of the schemes for individuals, they open up for interdisciplinarity. When I was a secretary general and I ended my term now three years ago, we set up a special call for interdisciplinarity because usually it takes more time to do interdisciplinary work. Maybe you you need somewhat larger grants because you need a big group if you want to combine many different kinds of expertise. And maybe it is also good then to have panels that really are interdisciplinary panels. So there is such a call at the Swedish Research Council and I think it has been quite good. There is quite a lot of funding for interdisciplinary work in Sweden, especially on the more applied side or a more thematic side, for example, on the global challenges. But this specific call was aiming at more fundamental research. There was quite a lot of talk during the workshop of these top-down initiatives, as you mentioned, that in response to a societal challenge to give a grant to solve a specific problem. What are your thoughts on this? Actually, that was one of the issues that I reflected maybe most around during the workshop, because I think there are too many top-down initiatives, because it adds to the fragmentation of the research landscape. But when I posed that question during one of the lectures, I got a response that it's not either or, but it's usually a sort of a dialogue and an interaction between top-down and bottom-up. And that's very true. So the important thing is, of course, that you fill these top-down initiatives with scholarly work and that the researchers really can influence and fill that with the content. One thing that we did not discuss that much during the workshop is really the administrative side, because each such top-down initiative, I mean, it creates its own organization. I'm an organization (laughs) theorist, so I'm very cautious of this. When you create a center, you create administration, you create a governance structure, you sometimes create boundaries around and maybe even competition with other initiatives. So the many top-down initiatives, sometimes they drive administration and they lead to a fragmentation. So I'm, I'm skeptical, but I'm... I have been a bit more humble around it than before the workshop. And I realized that many of the initiatives I've been involved in are top-down initiatives from the beginning too. There is a need for both, but I think we should be a bit cautious. For a young researcher, it becomes extremely complex to be aware of all those different initiatives And especially if they are formed, as many are, as small mini research councils that issue their own calls and set up their own peer review processes. And you have to apply as a researcher and you have to keep track of of the different procedures. That takes a lot of effort. So 
a little bit less of this, I would wish. So what role do the Institutes for Advanced Study play or can play in interdisciplinarity, do you think? Well, I think there are many more experts on mm -hmm. those institutes than I am. I've been visiting, not for long period, but I've attended quite a lot of seminars here and in other institutes. But on a more principal level then, taking into account what I said about the multidisciplinary environment being a very good environment for interdisciplinary work and also where interdisciplinary work may be formed because people start to discuss and find each other. So the institutes are, of course, multidisciplinary environments. So they are good environments for interdisciplinary work. And one more thing about them is that here, the scholars who come to the institutes have also a foot in the disciplinary world. And they are often very good and respected people in their respective disciplines. So I think it is ideal for this, what I tried to emphasize, the connection between discipline, multidiscipline and interdiscipline. So I think they can have a very big role to play. I think it is extremely good when you mix young and more senior people. And of course, as always, as all research settings, you, of course, need to be aware that you are not too sort of distanced from other parts or that you build the boundaries around or we discuss the danger of having these as hotels for research tourists who travel around the world and become a sort of a, a group of its own. But the connections, of course, are extremely important. And I think all institutes have that, so I don't think it's a problem, but it's something that you have to think about, I guess. My view, and we heard excellent presentations during the workshop, is that these uh, institutes have an extremely important role to play, especially when it comes to fostering and enabling interdisciplinary research on more fundamental issues. We should also be aware of, we didn't discuss this very much at the workshop, but it came up once in a while. And that is when we talk about interdisciplinary research, it sounds as though it's clear what is a discipline, but it's not, of course, because disciplinary boundaries differ across locations, across countries, across settings. So some disciplines are in themselves very open to other disciplines or they may even be interdisciplinary in themselves. Anything you would like to add? Any thoughts after these days? Or... <laughs> no, I think that it has been excellent days. I think that it is clear that there is not one kind of institute for advanced studies, but they are also very different. Which is good, I think. And if we look upon interdisciplinary initiatives as experiments that you experiment with setting up different kinds of constellations of researchers and see what comes out of it and take the experiences into account for further 
setting up new initiatives. I think this variation is extremely good. So it's a scientific experiment in itself. <laughs> yes, I think it is. A good experiment often raises more questions than it answers, and this workshop left many participants with food for thought and new questions. SCAS Talk Spotlight will follow up on some of these in a second part on the same topic, where we will hear the thoughts and reflections of the organizers of this workshop, Martin Klunen, Principal of the Turku Institute for Advanced Studies, Søren Rutkeiding, Principal of the Aarhus Institute for Advanced Studies, and Christina Garsten, Principal of the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Sverke Selin, Britta Padberg, Maria Polvinen and Kerstin Salin for taking the time to talk to me during the workshop. And I would of course like to thank you for listening to SCAS Talks Spotlight. You can find the podcast of the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study on Podbean, iTunes and Spotify. Just search for SCAS Talks. The variety of the topics and scholars in this podcast represent the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment and SCAS, and we are sure that there is something of interest for everybody. If you like this episode, please share it with your colleagues and friends. Thanks for listening once again, and bye for now.